I'm Bert Cohen, and all together now, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Three, two, one. History never literally repeats itself, but it certainly pulls some surprising, unanticipated phenomena from the sometimes distant past into the present. Certainly, each new version of fascism in the 20th and 21st century is itself unique. And on the left, there are lessons in history which are available from which to learn, but it seems rarely are. Aside from art, there really is nothing entirely new under the sun. Some of the roots of the current political realities in America are obvious, but others are, it seems, only discovered by historians. I mean, we know Trumpism is like other populist trends around the world, Duterte in Philippines, Orban in Hungary, Bolsonaro in Brazil quickly come to mind, and we know that the solid base of support for Trump in America has consistently been the right-wing evangelical community. Our guest today, Martin Widdock, in his new book, Trump and the Puritans, examines the surprising legacy of 17th century American Puritanism in defining the Trump administration. He says, despite the obvious similarities to right-wing dictatorships around the world, quote, Donald Trump's success is also rooted in a peculiarly American experience that being the Puritans, who are among the earliest known white settlers of North America. In wars and politics, it's always been crucial to know thine enemy. So perhaps focusing in on the roots of this presidency may help provide uniquely useful tools for uh, effectively digging it out. He writes in his essay on History News Network, what is going on in the modern USA has very deep roots. They are roots that stretch back into the almost mythological origins of the nation in the 17th century. Martin Whittock, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Live. Thank you. Great to be with you. Martin Whittock taught history for 35 years and has acted as an historical consultant to the British National Trust Organization, the BBC, and English Heritage. He's a licensed lay minister in the Church of England. Among his many books, he has written about Uh, both adult and children's books about the Nordic myths, the Vikings, the Middle Ages, Celtic myths, Rome, and the Third Reich. Well, I imagine you were as surprised by the victory of Donald Trump as we were on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, Martin, you noticed something unique and significant about Trump's inauguration. What was that? Well, first of all, I must preface it by saying, yes, I was surprised. Um, I remember waking up that uh, morning in the, in the autumn and thinking, well, I haven't quite seen this one coming, yeah. and, and perhaps perhaps I should have. Um, and since then, I've been 
puzzling over it. And as you say, there was something quite significant about the inauguration of President Trump. And that was, with its six religious leaders praying for him and uh, apparently accompanying him, not always supporting him, but there, um, there were more, I believe, than any other inauguration in history. So something quite significant and quite extraordinary was there from the start in the Trump administration. And, And some of those there were clearly Trump enthusiasts. Some of them there were had been critics of Donald Trump, but felt they they were honoured and had a role to play in being called to be at the inauguration. So we we can't assume that all six had the same Trump orientated beliefs and ideas. Two of them were definitely very pro Trump. Others more ambiguous, and, and some were critics. But the point was, the Trump presidency started with a quite extraordinary experience. Six religious leaders, more than at any time in history. And at that point, people should have been asking themselves, I think they, they were beginning to, what is going on here? This isn't quite like anything we've had before. Yeah, well, I don't think, I mean, with all the other stuff that was going on and everybody being in shock, somehow I think most people, including myself, overlooked that fact. But I'm glad mm. you I'm glad you picked up on it. That's why we have historians. Uh, and you talk about the culture wars, what Pat Buchanan at the 1992 Republican convention called a battle for the soul of America. Now, in my amateur readings of history, I get the impression that despite military victories, battles are more often than not, not really ended, such as the American Civil War. The values of the Confederacy never went away. In fact, they've kind of dominated us ever since then. It's like they won. And uh, like the First World War, which merely took a long weekend off till it started up again, with regard to the culture war in America, until recently, I had thought that our side, that of the 20th century cultural left, actually had won, at least culturally, if not quite yet politically. Apparently I was wrong. Neither side has actually won, but the cultural right has come back with a vengeance. What have you observed about the historic impacts of the cultural right on America? I think from our current position, as we look back into the 20th century, we can see that it's been growing significantly. It didn't start there, but it's been growing significantly since the 1960s in opposition to what was seen as an attack on defined American values, American culture, American ways of doing things, as defined by a particular section of the U.S. population, obviously. In that sense, there was a crisis growing seen in the anti-war movement with the the attack, it seemed to be, on the American patriotism and American world world, world presence. Um, The the right to abortion um, in the early 70s, Roe versus Wade. Uh, The growth of feminism through the 1960s into the 70s, beyond. And, and this is obviously a very complicated area which has extraordinary resonance to where we are now, the whole business of equal rights and uh, campaigns for racial equality. And what we seem to see is, from the 60s onwards, a, a pushback by the American right, who are feeling that the tide of history is flowing against them and flowing against their view of America. And what we see is, is, is a pushback, a, a, a kickback, and, and it accelerates 
a little uncertainly in, in the 70s, and then certainly it becomes much more significant in the 80s. But, but they're disappointed by Reagan, because Reagan managed to talk right, but, but didn't deliver on a whole range of other issues that they wanted. They, they clearly felt a lot more confident and became much more dominant within the Republican Party uh, under Bush Sr., but Bush Sr. was also um, a disappointment. In 1989, 1993, they, they clearly didn't feel they had in the White House a, a, a kindred spirit. This changed significantly with the election of George W. Bush, 2001 to 2009, because at this point, with, with the Republican Party now being really significantly infiltrated and significantly influenced by a concerted attempt by American evangelicals uh, to, to, to dominate the party apparatus, they, they finally had in the presidency somebody who was, they would regard, by their own terms, a born-again Christian. And yet, clearly, he did not see himself as being enthralled to them. And so, in many ways, George W. Bush was also something of a disappointment to uh, the evangelical right. Um, and, and, and less of that's the cultural right, but certainly to the evangelical right. He, he, he seemed to be their boy, but he didn't actually, he didn't actually play along. And having had that experience, Barack Obama was an absolute catastrophe for the right, you know, and certainly for the evangelical right. It was like, we're much more influential in the Republican Party now, we yet, yet somehow we're still not controlling the presidency, and then Barack Obama happens, and it's like, whoa, and that is a sort of red rag to a bull. <laughs> you don't think racism had anything to do with that? No, it couldn't be. I actually, I actually thought... Uh, Back in the 50s, when the uh, they weren't called the right then, but there was concern about rock and roll. And I think, I really do think that the danger of rock and roll was that uh, it had black kids and white kids dancing together, you know, and it's been going on ever since then. That's fascinating that, like, Trump is the first guy to really deliver to these guys. Fascinating. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Now, in general, is America, I mean, the Puritans were quite religious. I mean, they were just... I think, I don't know very much about it, uh, really dominated by religion and guided by religion. Is America today, in the 21st century, still more influenced by religious faith than other major Western powers? I would say the answer to that is quite simply yes. Yeah. Um, I'm writing um, based in the UK, the visitor to the US, um, and seeing it from this side of the pond, it's quite extraordinary because we in the UK often regard ourselves as being very American. Um, you know, we watch the same films, we talk you know, sort of the same language, um, sure. we've got the same, tele same sort of television, same sort of music, or what have you. Um, and yet, when it comes to religion, it is strikingly different. In the UK, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian myself, but in, in the UK, the Christian churches do not dictate to politics. They're, they're not invited to prayer breakfast. I think someone once said of the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, Tony doesn't do God. And it's quite extraordinary from the, from the UK mm. perspective. We, 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 look at, we look at America and we say, gosh, that's quite amazing. It's quite different. And I would say that's true of almost most Western European countries as well, almost all of which are secular, both in theory and right. in practice. And I think the extraordinary thing about the States is that the United States is secular in theory, obviously, now you know, there's no question about that, um, right. and it's not, secular, it's not secular in practice. And I came across some quite extraordinary stats that in, in 2014, a little while ago now, but in 2014, something like 70% of U.S. adults identified as Christian as some form or another. 
and, and of overall U.S. adults, something like 25% voted as evangelicals. Now, that's, that's, that's quite extraordinary. And I think if you're looking for parallels between the influence of a religious group and its political culture, this sounds provocative, but I don't mean it to be provocative. Oh, I, know. I think you almost have to look at Islamic nations to find parallels to the United States. You won't find them in Western Europe, and that's quite extraordinary. That is extraordinary. Uh, um, yeah, the, 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 there's a lot to think about there, and, and interesting points. You know, guided by religion, religious uh, state, and you know, a lot of people are afraid of uh, of uh, you know Islamic rule. I don't think realistically. Uh, but, uh, you know, fear, as you know, is so important and so incredibly yeah. powerful. There's nothing like fear to keep people in line. What is known about the percentage of weekly church-attending Protestants in America who believe that Trump is anointed by God? And how do you explain that in light of his constant lying, his adultery, and so many other things one might think might, might interrupt that belief? So this is sort of a two-part question. Yeah, okay, okay. Right, well, we're starting from a baseline in 2016 where somewhere in the region of 81% of evangelicals, and that's, 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 that's usually we're thinking about white evangelicals, so somewhere in the region of 81% of mostly white evangelicals voted for President Trump. Extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Deserted the Democrats in droves. Never, never been strong supporters of the, of the Democrats, um, but, but, but deserted it in droves. Uh, I, I calculate that somewhere in the region of 33 million voters were evangelical voters who voted for Trump. That's quite extraordinary. Wow. Now, you might have looked at the last four years and think, mm, yeah, but things might have changed over four years. And while we're still trying to kind of work out the implications of the COVID-19 crisis, and I guess we'll come on to that a little bit later, there's a very interesting uh, New York Times report in May, um, which which explored some, some surprising stats. And what it found was that between May 2019 and March 2020, so just about the time that the COVID-19 crisis was, was striking mm. across the world and, and in the States. So in, in approximately the year, a bit less than a year, between May 2019 and March 2020, the percentage of weekly attending Protestant Christians who believed that President Trump was anointed by God anointed by God as president, went up from, in May 2019, 29.6%, 29.6%, to, in March 2020, 49.5%. I'll repeat that statistic, 49.5%. Now, that's an interesting stat. Um, and, and, and I've looked at other statistics also from very well regarded research institutes like the, the, the Pew Research Institute, for example, sure. that show that in 2018-2019, you have stats like, and this will come on to our second question, or part B, right. stats that say things like, something like 50% of evangelicals do not feel that President Trump has improved the moral tone of the nation. Okay, so mark that one. Something like about 50% of evangelicals do not approve of the things that he says and tweets and does. Uh -huh. Okay, but, but something like 70% still support him. 
Okay. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, exactly, precisely. Now you might you might you might come back on that and say, yeah, but surely morality is what evangelicals do. So how can you disapprove of the moral tone of a person and yet overwhelmingly support him? And that comes on to your part B question, which was, given all that stuff, yeah. why does it not get in the way of support? And this is what I think is one of the most extremely interesting and extraordinary aspects. And this is something that on this side of the pond, people find very difficult to understand. Um, because I'm a Christian, and actually I'm an evangelical, but of interest. I go to a church regarded as evangelical. And most of my friends at church look at President Trump and say, well, I wouldn't vote for him. And they're actually intrigued and shocked and astonished by the fact that people that in many ways would sign up to stuff that they'd sign up to in terms of beliefs still support Trump regardless. Um, what seems to be going on, which, which as I say, is to the prevalence of many of my friends um, on this side of the pond, is, is, has been described as the Cyrus factor. Oh. And this is something that we explore in the book, um, Trump and the Puritans, I've co-written with James Roberts, which came out in, in the States last week. Um, the Cyrus factor. And this is that evangelical Christians, or many evangelical Christians, explicitly say that Although this man does things that are wrong, we believe he is an agent in the hands of God. And it's called the Cyrus Factor because it refers to a, uh, an Old Testament king of Persia who's, who's described in the Old Testament as doing God's will, although he's not one, although he's not one of the chosen people. The idea is that like, he's an instrument in the hands of God, whether he knows it or not. And this isn't just something, something I've made up. You will actually find leading evangelical preachers and speakers specifically comparing President Trump to Cyrus. So this isn't just a construct. This is an explicit statement. We see him, they say, as an instrument in the hands of God. So the short answer to your question of why, given all that stuff, mm -hmm. do they still support him is he delivers. Ah, he delivers. He yes, delivers. he yes. delivers or yes. is perceived as being likely to deliver. Interesting. The other guys let them down, uh, Reagan, Bush, yes. both Bushes, but this guy delivers. I have seen that. I have seen that, and it's baffled me. That's why I need history professors for that. Well, you're not a professor, but <laughs> <laughs> if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're looking at some of the roots of democracy. Our guest today, Martin Whithuck, has a new book out just came out called Trump and the Puritans, and he's over in Bath, England, I believe. Um, when the Puritans came to what is now America, I can imagine it must have seemed like scary as heck, pure chaos, uncertainty, and turbulence. In this context, what is meant by seeing Trump as the chaos candidate? Yes, this is a phrase that a number of people have used describing him, and it's, it's, it's a phrase that I've used myself um, in describing him. And I think what we mean when we describe Trump as the chaos candidate is that he is the kind of character, the kind of politician who thrives in turbulence. That whereas many people find turbulence disturbing, he is a character that is drawn to it, that finds it attractive and sees opportunity in that. Because he is he is skillful at articulating anger and anxiety. Mm. 
uh, Hillary Clinton discovered this, you know, when she when, when, when she created the phrase the deplorable, and she then found that people were putting up posters saying, I'm proud to be deplorable, yes. or I'm one of the deplorables, um, and, and she'd given them a badge without meaning to. Yeah. What had happened was, 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 that, was that Trump is very skillful at articulating anger and anxiety. And in what you might call dominating or creating the narrative. And I think one of his skills, whatever you think about him as a person, is he's skillful at dominating the narrative. I don't mean to say he's dominating continuously. doesn't mean to say he's succeeded in doing it. But he has in the past proved to be very skillful at being able to divert the narrative, to dominate it, to create it, to, to, to make the narrative. And in this sense, he's untroubled by restraints of principle which might hamstring a different type of politician. Because in many ways, he is extraordinarily self-driven. He's extraordinarily self-confident. I mean, I, I suspect all politicians have, you know, <laughs> um, you know a, a greater degree of self-confidence than most of us. Um, but he, he has it to a, to a quite extraordinary degree, almost to a sort of a narcissistic degree. Mm, exactly, absolutely. And, and he's highly instinctive and he's highly self-confident. And people are drawn to that which is believed in strongly. And I think that at the time of chaos and at the time of uncertainty, certain politicians speak for unity, they speak for coming together, they speak for stability. A Trump candidate speaks for decision, victory, dominate the streets. You've heard that phrase recently. Um, and, and basically, what we have here is we have a character who, who actually thrives on turbulence because he's skillful at, at articulating anger and he's skillful at dominating the narrative. And I think that's quite quite an extraordinary characteristic. Wow, I can see that. Yeah, and what a world they came into. I remember learning about that era when the white European invaders believed they had a calling. What did mm. that mean, and what is its legacy today? How how did it influence this rather odd notion? of American exceptionalism? Yes, that's a very, very good question. And it goes very much to the heart of, if you like, the, 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 the Puritan contribution. Because they, they, they came to a world that was to them obviously a new world. Obviously, Native Americans, it was a, it was a well-established old world. They knew it pretty well. Um, but for Europeans, it was it was the other. It was, it, was, it was a new world. It was unknown. And so what we see is we see a sense of um, of an American Israel, a new Canaan. They 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 quite consciously and self consciously in the seventeenth century describe themselves as having crossed the equivalent of the Jordan River, i.e. the Atlantic, to be called by God to leave um, Europe behind them, to create a a new world uh, as they saw it, uh, and they, they use phrases like. An American Israel mm. to describe themselves, um, an American Canaan um, to describe the land that they that, that they that they were conquering, and what it gave them was it gave them an extraordinary sense of errand, the sense that they were on a mission. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not surprising that that the Mayflower. Uh, Travelers describe themselves as pilgrims. They were people on the move. They were going from one place to another. They weren't at home in Europe. They were trying to find where God had called them to. And so this sense of calling is, is a very, very significant part of what they saw themselves as. Now, you can see that from that, 
it doesn't take a great deal of analysis to see how that, that, that mythological origins feed into a sense of national self-confidence, which is then, in the 19th century, refined through continental expansion. Mm. Uh, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll make it onto Manifest Destiny a bit later. Um, industrial might, and the sense that God must approve of us because we are successful. So, in, in uh. one sense, the, the Puritan legacy, and we we'll have to remember, of course, you can't... You can't just blame people in the past for the stuff we do with what we, with, with them as well. You know, whilst they, they they contribute towards the mythology, we also use, we quarry, we misuse, we adapt. You know, um, we refine, we define it as well. So they left, if you like, a whole a whole bunch of raw materials of of, of confidence, of calling, of American Israel. And that gets picked up in the 18th century, in the 19th century. Sometimes it's secularized. It's not terribly religious in that sense. But a sense of self-confidence, almost precocious self-confidence. Um, and then you, you know, then you win. You win the Indian you win, you win, you win the Native American Wars, the Plains Wars, you know, what you know, the, the white settlers do. America becomes industrially powerful. Uh, this is easily interpreted as God having, God having cleared your title to the place in the 17th century mm. via European diseases and then having reinforced that by prosperity in the 19th century. One can see the connection between the two. Shocking as that is, obviously, and obviously I'm not saying that with approval, um, but you can, see how, you can see how people saw it that way. Look, they've been cleared in the, in the 17th century. Look, we're dominating in the 19th century. Clearly, we are put here to control this continent. We are called to do so. Wow. I had This is fascinating to me. I'd never thought that the diseases that that the European invaders brought and, you know, wiped out a lot of the Indians uh, could uh, somehow be interpreted that, well, we cleared the land, therefore, obviously, God intended us to have that. Fascinating. Troubling. There are are actually 17th century quotes that say that. That's not just me voicing it for them. You can actually find 17th century quotes um, from New England which have phrases like, God hath cleared this pernicious growth to make room for a better growth. Phrases such as, the title to the land has been cleared. These are quotes. Yes, the title to the land has been cleared. Ah, and that's been interpreted many different ways. And, you know, uh, what was it Joseph Smith with the Mormons uh, had this new Israel, new Canaan. And, uh, you know, the the settlers in the uh, 20th century and what's now Israel clearing the land, uh, a land without a people, uh, you know, for a people Mm. without a land. It wasn't accurate, of course. Same with the uh, currently United States. Oh, my goodness. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Martin Whitock, who uh, has a brand new book out called Trump and the Puritans. Who'd have thunk it? Trump and the Puritans. Uh, There's so much there. And and you say that... uh, the uh, uh, Puritan Foundation concepts fed into the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, along with Enlightenment ideas. There's a lot there, please. I wonder if you could explain some of that. We very often have very simplistic views of the Puritans. You know, they're just they're just doer, killjoys, looking out for somebody having fun and then yeah. putting a stop to it. Um, <laughs> but actually, you know what I mean. Um, but, but actually, the Puritan legacy in the 17th century, which feeds into the 18th century, is much more complicated than that. 
Puritans believed very, very strongly in an educated citizenry. And it's interesting that within, I believe, six years of the founding of Boston, um, the university is set up there. Interesting. You know, within six years. Why? Why? Because it's important that people should have their education, because if you haven't been educated, you can't read the Bible, you can't study, you can't be an informed person. So the 17th century legacy is not just about doerness and and killjoyness. It's also about an educated citizenry. So as I say, that within, hmm. 16, within, within six years, just six years of the founding of Boston in 1830, you have a university being set up there, you know, a, a, a rather famous one, you know? Yes, um, indeed. Harvard. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, Cambridge, I mean, linked to the great centre of um, Puritan uh, preaching and teaching in, in, in East Anglia. It's, it's not coincidental that yeah. Cambridge, Massachusetts, is named Cambridge. You know, there's that sense of, of connectedness with the old world. But there's educated citizenry. When we, when we have things like the Mayflower Compact of November 1620, people come together freely and they decide, say, we're going to create a community, we're going to come under law, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to respect the law and so on. When you see the kind of covenants, as they call them, that are found by, uh, formed by the New England Puritan communities in the 1630s, in the 1640s, you begin to see that, that the Puritan legacy is also about educated, engaged citizens who actively form community. Okay, they actively exclude as well, so we'll come on to, come on to that a bit later. They actively exclude as well. But there also is that sense in which people have to be involved. Now, you can see that there's a precocious confidence in that. Mm-hmm. There's an independent-mindedness. And although, obviously, by the 18th century, you've got a whole flood of anti-British sentiment, you know, no taxation, that representation, and all those extremely important debates. You've got enlightenment ideas about, you know, the, the equality of, of, of man. Of course, at that point, it often excluded women, but you know what I mean. Um, that's at the, the, the time. But what's also feeding into it is this Puritan legacy of educated citizens who come together to form a community, and then suddenly you begin to realize that the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, which are extraordinary documents, yes. I mean, amazing documents, yeah. uh, they're not just the products of the 18th century rational enlightenment. You could also see currents flowing into them that any 17th century Puritan, looking at the most positive sides of Puritanism, would recognize too. Fascinating. And, and the, you know, the whole spirit of uh, self-government, yeah, I mean, you have Absolutely. to you have to be educated, and you know, separate from uh, uh, the uh, control by the the uh, the Church of of uh, England, the Anglican Church, of yeah. which you are a member, I believe. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we're very nice now. I'm very open. I'm very, very you know very welcoming. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But uh, it, it's it's just so interesting. You know, we just don't yeah. look at this stuff. And there's it's not all bad, as we say. You know, the idea of self government. Yeah. I kind of like yeah. the idea. I really do. Um, and, uh, let's see. So manifest destiny, how did this, you know, the idea of American Canaan and the American Israel, uh, culturally and psychologically evolve into the 19th century, uh, idea of manifest destiny and the subjugation and genocide of native peoples here in America. And then later on in, uh, you know, the Philippines, places like that. How did it, how did it evolve that way? 
One of the things that we explore in the book as we kind of trace this mythological origins of the U.S., and it's not just myth either, um, but these sort of extraordinary origins in the 17th century through to the present day, is we make the point that we're not trying to claim there's a simple linear connection. We're not trying to say simply, obviously, that this organization led to that organization, led to that organization, and so on and so forth. And without a shadow of a doubt, um, many, for example, 19th century um, Americans would have been, you know, Methodists and Baptists and the Puritans would have, would have, would have, would have, been, would have been shocked and horrified by them, because theologically they'd have been miles apart from them. Um, the Puritans would have um, expelled uh, Baptists from their communities. So the fact that today we see the heartland in, in southern Baptist churches, for example, Mm. just makes the point that what we're seeing is not a simple linear movement of ideas. It's not simply this organization, it's that organization. What we're seeing is how key themes, key tropes, key images, key ways of regarding yourself become part Mm. of the culture and then get passed on from person to person to person and group to group within the 18th century and the 19th century. And Manifest Destiny is a really interesting example of that because in one sense, the first time I believe the Manifest Destiny is used as a term is in 1845 um, in the New York Morning News of July 1845. Mm. Um, It's also found in the Democratic Review um, that same year. And and it's said very much in, in a secular sense. So in that sense, Manifest Destiny, the idea that basically white, white, white right. European-origined uh, settlers are going to basically take over the whole continent, um, and that's going to drive out both, both, both Hispanic Mexicans you know, in the Mexican War, um, but also Native Americans. It, 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 it's, a very, it's a very secular concept. And yet, actually, if, if you drill deeper into it, you see that one of the reasons why it has such resonance, why it's picked up with such confidence in the 1850s, um, and then it's become again after the Civil War, um, with great expansion west in, in the 60s and 70s again, um, 1860s, 1870s, mm. is because it speaks to something very deep in the American character. Um, it, it speaks to that sense of calling, which I've mentioned before, that sense of confidence, that sense of having entitlement to the land, that also that sense of racial confidence as well, that sense of racial superiority. And it links back to things like you know King Philip's War in, in, in the 1670s, and the sense of the land being cleared for settlement by a quote-unquote better growth. And I think what we see there is the justification for political expansion in the 19th century, which is made with mostly secular arguments, is actually nevertheless deeply rooted in tropes and ideas and a mythological path that have resonance because they say something very fundamental about being an American. Oh, so you, you know, being a European-derived American. Which, yeah, that's 100% Americanism, as they described it in the early 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, when they, uh, uh, you know, treated others badly, hyphenated Americans and, and uh, you know, just mm. other people. Um, I wanted to, one of the things that I, I've wondered about, you know, people, the fact that, I, it's fascinating to me how people of lower income in America oftentimes go for the very wealthiest uh, people as their leaders. Uh, it's been in so many different cases. You see people you know, in trailer parks with, with big lawn signs up for the, uh, the wealthy people who, you know, just I don't know what they think they're going to get from that. But 
it was the, I believe it was the Puritans, maybe not, who believed that money and riches are not an evil thing, but it shows that you're one of the elect, that your sign having money and riches are signs of the blessing of God. Was it them? Yes, we, we certainly do see that um, within a lot of 17th century writings. As people, as, as Christendom fractured, um, obviously in the Reformation in the, um, in the 16th century, um, and then as it fractured and fractured again in the 17th century, and obviously uh, the people that came to America um, in the 17th century were themselves splitting away from a church that had split sure. away from the Catholic Church, you know, um, fragmentation becomes part of the system. You can see that there's kind of a psychological need to decide, but am I on the right side here? Mm. Am, 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 am I one of the good guys? Um, if, if you believe that you all are part of Christendom, um, as medieval world did, then you still might be thinking, you know, am, am I a good Christian or a bad Christian? You know, should I be doing better? But there's a sense of which we're all part of the community. But once Christianity fragments the Reformation, and then, and then fragmentation then enters into the DNA, particularly of Protestant Christianity, then you can see within the 17th century a very real psychological need for people to feel more assured about their own salvation. And you can also clearly see that in the 17th century, people start to look to wealth as a way of um, mm -hmm. confirming that. Now, when one thinks about the poverty of Jesus, um, when one thinks about the poverty of the early church, um, when one thinks about the kind of people that Jesus hung around with, there is obviously a great deal of incongruity between this way of deciding on your election um, and Christianity's roots. I mean, Christianity is rooted in a radical, a radical experience, but people have a habit of, as you know, of trying to sort of you know, tone things down. Um, and in the 17th century, we definitely see lots of evidence for people looking around and thinking, I think salvation is in some way, uh, obviously, measured by the approval of God. The approval of God is measured by, um, by, by, by wealth. I actually remember coming across a comment by a lady in the middle 17th century, in the in the in UK, wasn't the UK at the time, but Britain at the time, yeah. saying that basically what she said was, I thought I was saved more than my neighbours, but then I saw that they prospered better than I did, and I began to fear that I was playing the hypocrite. Now, what was interesting was she saw the prosperity of her neighbours, and she saw that as being a direct sign of divine approval. So you can definitely find something of the health and wealth gospel as it is promulgated today by um, televangelists, some of whom are very strong Trump supporters, yes. um, and 17th century roots, definitely, yes. Fascinating. So it's interesting to see how in, in Trump's, uh, one of his homes, just gold, gold, gold everywhere, yeah. how some people might see it as kind of tacky and gross, but that's a very interesting uh, sort of explanation and, and like, ah, that's what's going on. It's good to understand that. Trump and his supporters, I think, I, I don't think many of them think of themselves as racist, but they have this distrust and desire to mm. eliminate the other. Does that too go back to the Puritans? Sadly, Yes. What's, what's interesting is that the, the very first Mayflower settlers, actually for the first generation, with some exceptions, get on 
fairly well with the original inhabitants of the land. But this breaks down terribly um, in the second generation in King Philip's War, which I believe per capita has the highest casualty rates of of any of the wars between indigenous peoples and, and colonists in, mm. in, in, in America. Um, but most people haven't even heard of King Philip's War, but it, it was sure. appalling. It was terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, and what that then did was it, it created a really intense sense of the other, that the other are the savage, the others are those that scalp, the others are those that massacre. Now, obviously, these things happen on both sides as well, as you can imagine. But what we see is that rapidly in the 17th century, this idea of the alien other, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the, the, the threat. In fact, in fact, we have some Puritan writers even saying things quite intriguingly in the second generation. Why aren't things as pure as they used to be? Why aren't things as good as they used to be? You know, as, as they say, nostalgia ain't what it used to be. Um, and, and, and in the second generation, we, we see this story, uh, Puritan saying this in the 17th century, and some of them start to say, there's something about America. There's something about this place. There's something that is not of God here, which we have to conquer and bring under control. And you can you can you, you can quite clearly get to see that that's soon going to go to target Native Americans as those who are not of God, those who are the original inhabitants. So this sense of an alien other, of somebody who's threatening the spiritual purity as well as the physical existence, you know, given the the early warfare. Um, emerging in the 17th century to a quite astonishing degree. Wow. The more I learn about history, the more fascinated I am. I I hope there's a lot of that going around. I don't know. But another bit of American history from the 17th century is the Mm. infamous Salem witch hunts, witch trials. Talk about the legacy of that, please, in the 20th and 21st century America, please. Salem witch trials are quite extraordinary. And they they explode in uh, um against the background of increasing anxiety in New England. There's a whole bunch of anxieties going on here. Uh, there's war with Native Americans. Um, there's been King Philip's War. Uh, there's King William's War. These are all the sort of the wars that often people have never even heard of. Um, 17th century wars. There's, there's, there's wars with other European colonists who are both fighting with Native American tribes on either side. There's a sense of threat. Puritans are no longer feeling control of things. The, the British crown is beginning to rein in theocracy in the 1680s and 1690s, beginning to insist that voting rights can't just be uh, kept to some people who are members of gathered churches. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that in the 1690s, we have this explosion of anxiety, because effectively, mm. a culture war and some real wars have been going on in the 1670s and 1680s. And we see communities increasingly ill at ease with themselves, distrustful of the new, the new immigrants, That's, that, that Europeans come from the colony, uh, from, from, from Britain, you know, that, that they're not as pure as they used to be, yeah. fearful of the alien other. And I think it, it's no surprise that that also has entered into the cultural DNA as well. That sense of that no matter how high our calling, there are always those who are trying to drag us down. The alien other is always at risk. If, 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 if we hesitate, we will lose. And I think one of the things we see since the 1960s in this so-called culture war 
is is a pushback of communities who feel they're losing the culture war. Yes. Just as at Salem, Massachusetts, people felt they were losing the culture war. Um, so, so from the 70s, 80s, 90s onwards, there's been communities that looked around them and said, hmm, I'm no longer in, in charge in the United States, or you know, people that look like me aren't. Um, there are people, there, there are people changing the ethnic demog- demographic of the United States. Um, there are things challenging the views that I have of, of what America is about. And I think it's no surprise that as a result of this mounting anxieties in the 1670s, 80s, and 90s, we see the Senate witch hunts. I think it's no surprise that in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, we've seen a really severe kickback, pushback from people who feel themselves under threat and who feel they're losing in the culture wars and are determined to not let it go. Yes, they are certainly afraid. And and when they see... uh... Uh, I, I, it's gonna, it'll get better and it'll get worse both at the same time for sure. You know that uh, the, the fact is the uh, what used to be a minority is becoming a majority. People with darker skin, and Indeed. the idea of having to build a wall to keep those others out—that this is you know white-dominated America—and yeah, it's it's scary for them to to not have that you know ultimate control. I guess I don't know why they can't just see everybody as equal, but that's me and them. What can I say? And, you know, many of us have have heard the term dominionists. Attorney General Bill Barr certainly appears to be a progenitor of religious nationalism, which would appear to me anyway to be in line with the Puritans. And that form of government is a far cry from Republican form of government. Does the USA, as you say, really, quote, contain millions of voters who harbor theocratic ambitions that would have been readily understood in the 17th century? Has it always been there? I, I think the answer is yes, and I think they wouldn't put it in those terms. And I think, that, and I think, but, but nevertheless, that is exactly what's going on. Oh, I think that what you're in, in this pushback, there is a sense in which spiritual issues, as perceived. Um, a sense of moral errand outweighs legal and conventional norms. Mm. Now, what, now, what that means is that if you absolutely believe that you are absolutely right, and you absolutely believe that that is true in a spiritual sense um, and, and an eternal sense, um, and it's, not, it's not just a matter of ideological dispute, then it makes you more predisposed to cut corners um, to do without things, to set norms to one side, because at the end of the day, what what do rules and norms have compared to huge issues of eternal consequence? Now, now the simple the simple matter is, we all know that rules are pretty important, that the rule of law is pretty crucial, um, that whether we like it or not, doing things slowly um, is often better than doing things in a rush. But you can see that if you if you strongly believe that you are involved in a culture war, that denies all legitimacy to those people on the other side. After all, they are they are destroying your country, in inverted commas. Um, and it may well mean that you are prepared to do things and countenance things that at one point you would regard it as being antithetical to your points of view because you would normally regard yourself as being law and order, constitutional, structure and rules. But hey, if push comes to shove... Maybe you've got to cut a few corners. Wow. So then one can see, I mean, I've, I've been baffled by the, the 
clear disregard for the rule of law, but that something there's something more important than the rule of law for a lot of these people. That explains a lot that is going on. Well, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort. And our guest today, Martin Whittock, has written about a new book, uh, Trump and the Puritans. And it's, it's surprising, and one can learn a lot, and I've certainly learned a lot today so far. So here we are, well into the 21st century, and with regard to the totally unexpected plague of the coronavirus in America, mm. that brought to the surface a very old tension between faith and science. What do you observe on that front uh, with regard to the subject that we're talking about? What are some of the roots of, of that tension between faith and science? First of all, there isn't one unified um, evangelical response to the COVID-19 crisis. I did a bit of checking online. Um, it hardly counts mm. as a scientific survey, um, but I did a quick check round amongst, amongst some of the leading evangelical churches, you know, from from right across the states. Um, and clearly, some were following the rules, following, you know, keeping social distancing, doing stuff online, and what have you. Okay. But I also found, as you will know from your headlines, others that are saying this is a denial of our rights to me. Right. It's, it's a denial of our constitutional religious freedoms. Um, um, we, we're not going to give in to the virus. Um, and, and, and I think what you see there is, and that's quite interesting, of course, because at the end of the day, what happened to legality and the rule of law and, and, and process and what have you? Because what you're seeing here is you're seeing a clash between two different ways of, of, of viewing the world. And obviously, for many evangelicals, they are, you know, wearing their mask or they're keeping two meters away or you know, six feet or whatever. Um, but clearly, some see in this a challenge. And we can see something here about people that perceive there being a conflict in faith and science. I mean, I certainly don't see there being a conflict, but I know that there will be some people who see there as being a, a, a conflict in faith and science. Why should I be not going to worship? Um, I'm not going to let a virus hold me back. Um, and of course, that's obviously extremely dangerous. You know, don't, don't, don't gather together. It, it's how it spreads. But you can see some people take that approach, and that's very controversial and very dangerous, particularly if it goes hand in hand with anti-federal ideology. So if, in fact, you say, well, I'm resentful of the fact that I'm not being allowed to go to church, but I'm also resentful of the federal state anyway, then mm -hmm. it's the federal state that's not allowing me to come to church. And whilst the feds are actually doing it just to stop the movement, and your state authorities are doing it just to stop the movement of, of coronavirus, that can very, very quickly be presented, falsely, I would hasten to add, as a secularist, authoritarian, interesting, you know, federal, deep state way of mm -hmm. trying to control my religious feelings. Now, these are extraordinary things to say, and I find it quite shocking when people say that, but I've come across that too, and that too has very old roots. Wow. That uh, So, you know, what, what you believe can be applied to many, many different realities on the ground now. So you're right. I think, you know, if, if people are don't trust the state in general, here's a way people can say, hey, these are the bad guys. Look, once again, they're proving me right that they don't care about faith, they don't care about religion, uh, yes. and this, uh, wow, can help their their strength build as we head towards an election, at least in theory. I don't know if there really will be one. Um, ideas and sets of values and ways of thinking, things in history rarely, if ever, come to a complete and full stop. 
the traditions of racism, immoral superiority of white Protestants, of the right and duty of certain Christian people to rule over all others, it does seem to have a champion in Donald Trump. Um, do you see any signs of this base, which is, I guess, about 30% of American voters, starting to be shaken by what many of us see as rather extreme moral failings? I mean, and also that, you know, when he cleared the, uh, the way, when Barr and Trump cleared the path violently so that the president could hold yeah. up the Bible, I, I, I wonder if that's shaking these true believers at all. I have, I have a feeling it might not be shaking it as much as you might expect it to shake it. Probably. Um, uh, yeah, um, I think probably within the middle ground, of which there are millions of people, there'll be people who will be moving either way, concerned at what's going on. But I think there's, there's, there's mounting evidence, and obviously we'll, we'll know more as statistical analysis happens over the summer, that clearly... President Trump is attempting to speak to his base. That, that extraordinary Bible photo opportunity at St. John's Church was, was in many ways a clear message to some people in the USA. It was clearly saying, I am your kind of president. I'm your kind of person. I represent your kind of USA. Now, I think that's an inappropriate use of the Bible, Bible and I think it, it's a hijacking of an international belief in God's grace for partisan purposes. That's my personal view. But you can, I think it's a view of quite a lot of people, so it's a view of the people whose church it was. Um, but, but there's evidence mounting that there are people who are reading it that way, who are seeing, yes, you know, they, they, they are seeing the, the, the current unrest as being primarily about law and order. Um, they're seeing it primarily about instability. Um, we're even seeing a little bit of a politicization of the military. Now, how far mm. that goes, mm -hmm. only the summer will tell. Mm. But I think there is plenty of evidence that many people, remember he's the chaos candidate at a time of turbulence, and at times of turbulence, there, there can be a very strong urge to adhere to what you've always adhered to, to hang on in there, and to stick with the guy or the woman who you think is going to take you through. And I think that's what was happening outside St. John's Church. It was President Trump sending a very, very clear message to a particular area of the United States community saying, here are me, here's me, here's the Bible, here's Christian standards, here's value, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As, as I term it, you know, as, as I view it, right. you know, in, in his view, um, against the chaos that's happening all around me, as, as, as I view it. And I think people, there would have been people that would have looked at that and said, yes, I buy into that. And I'm reminded of... Uh... 68, 1968, when yep. uh, people were scared of the turbulence and the chaos yes. all around. Whoa. And I wonder now, I mean, I thought racism was dealt a serious blow with the election of a black president. Clearly, I was mistaken. Some have observed that racism has always been there, that the lid was kept on that sewer. Now the stink has permeated the atmosphere. At least that's how some people have put it. The George Floyd moment does seem qualitatively different. I wonder, there's a lot of chaos in the streets, and, and as you talk, it makes me worried a little bit, but I wonder if, if this might be a turning point in history. It just goes on and on and on. Millions of us are out in the street week after week. Is it possible that this might represent a turning away from 17th century values kept alive by the Trumpist right, or maybe it'll actually help the Trumpist right? Your thoughts? We certainly are living in extraordinary times. 
and things that are going on are on an unprecedented scale. Um, and whilst they don't bear, bear comparison with, with what's happening in the United States, um, we're seeing similar demonstrations in the UK as well. Yes. Um, I oh. actually watched film from my home city of Bristol um, to see a, um, a statue of a guy whose wealth was gained in the slave trade pulled down on Sunday afternoon and hurled into Bristol Harbour. Yes. Now, um, so we, we, we definitely, I wouldn't imagine to see that in, in Bristol in the west of England. So clearly we are living in extraordinary days in which people are raising fundamental questions about, you know, what we, we know, what's, what's going on and the kind of society we want to be. The challenge, I think, is that, that, that President Trump is skillful at riding waves of unrest. And I think what, what many people will see as clearly racial issues will be presented as law and order, right. standards of behavior issues, which will allow some people to sidestep the, 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 the strong racial questions here and we'll see it as a law and order issue. Now, obviously, we know that's not the case, but I think there has been already, I think we saw outside St. John's Church, I think there will be other attempts to do that over the summer, attempts to recast this, to, to recapture the narrative and see it as a order versus disorder, mm -hmm. stability versus instability. Now, clearly, that's not what it's about. But obviously, every time there is instability, every time there is illegality, every time there is crime, it obviously means that that will be adapted and used and, and, and used as if that was the only thing that was going on and as if that was the dominant narrative. And I think what happens over the summer will be a battle for narrative, a battle for debate. What actually is going on here? And ironically, we're once more back to a battle for the soul of America, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's what kind of America, what kind of place, what kind of world do we see that to be? And there will be attempts to duck the race side of it, to present it in other terms. But I think it's just not going to go away this time. It's going to keep coming back, keep coming back. And what eventually comes of that, I'm not sure. Mm. But, but, I do, but I do think there's a real possibility that there will be people digging in and entrenching and saying, I'm going to go with what I go, know, I'm going to stick with where I am, this guy speaks for me, and Trump's... Well, put it this way, I, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen in November, and I think... Okay. I think the November race is still open, even with the extraordinary upheaval of COVID-19, even with the extraordinary uh, things that are going on on the streets of US cities at the moment. I think that I think the thing is still wide open. Yes. I think. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. I'm wrong. But certainly, I think things are, are, are going to get more unstable yet. I've been impressed by how many people, you know, it's like this this anger at at uh, police abuse and and injustice has been there for a long time and you know since Trump has been in there I've kind of wondered when is are people ever going to take to the streets well there they are and in huge huge numbers so I, I guess you know there's the hardcore the 30 35% that just Trump can do no wrong and then there's the rest of us and uh, the pilgrims and the puritans I should say were in a minority at the time but uh their, their uh, values have uh, continued and are still in effect. Fascinating. Discussion. And the other thing is Trump, Trump supporters get out and vote. Yes, they do. They vote. And that's really, really important. That 
I think somebody said that um, nowadays evangelical numbers are, are dropping, and it may be. I think I, I think I read some stats that said evangelical voters may make up 15% of the electorate, but something like 25% of voters. Yes. They get out and vote. So at the end of the day, that makes them extremely influential because they get out and vote. Well, there you go. The book is called Trump and the Puritans. The author is Martin Whittock. And who is the publisher? Bite Back. Bite Back? I love the the name. Thank you so much. Fascinating. Great to talk with you today. Thank you so much, Martin. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been great speaking to you, Bert. You take care. Thank you. You too. Thank you.